you know, if, if we take an example from our industry, so a true AI uh, would be uh, where we build a machine where a researcher could set a set of conditions on a problem. Uh, and that machine is able to then, you know, uh, uh, respond with a plan, a, a set of models, uh, the data to be collected, etc. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. Welcome to Stories in AI. What a pleasure to have you here with me today. Ganesh, thanks for having me over and a pleasure to be talking with you. This is awesome. I know we've been trying to do this for a long time, so thanks again for taking the time. Why don't we kick us off with your personal story, your journey, and you know, you've done so much in your life and you know, you're 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 in the thick of action right now at Merck, so give us your history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um well I, I actually started my uh uh, sort of career or journey in life, professional life, um, uh, by starting a PhD in physics. So my background is actually in theoretical physics uh, with a concentration around material science and um, uh, uh, what today would be called condensed matter physics. Um, and, you know, so during that work, there's a lot of uh, focus on simulations, um, along with the, the theory of, of how, you know, materials work. Um, and that kind of led me more into the computational physics area, uh, if you will, and that uh, progressed to uh, a pretty much a 20-year career in scientific software. Uh, then about nine years ago, um, I joined Merck, uh, MRL, um, the Merck Research Labs uh, part of Merck, uh, and just really, you know, sort of continuing the work around um, scientific modeling, scientific data. Uh, and the work that I've done at Merck has really focused on modeling simulation uh, broadly across uh, the research area. So, you know, some of the, the tools and applications that we've developed uh, enable uh, everything from uh, machine learning and traditional modeling uh, in the sort of chemistry space all the way up to health economics and um, outcomes. So we build solutions that help our researchers to affect, you know, essentially screen and find compounds all the way to when the compounds are, or the drugs rather, products are in the market, 
you know, what's the best placement? How do we uh, manage diseases, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, it's been a, it's been a good trip at, at Merck, I would say. And, uh, and, uh, more recently, you know, been involved in some of the work around quantum computing and, you know, next generation ML, et cetera, deep learning and kind of bringing those, uh, capabilities to some of the work that we do at Merck. No, it's awesome. It's such a fascinating uh, journey, and you know, you know, you, and and you are in the thick of action right now as a pharmaceutical company in this last two years, ravaged by this virus, coronavirus, in the, in the middle of the pandemic. So, this top of mind question for everybody here: the Omicron variant, right? Give us your opinion. You know, you understand both the technology side and the the, the, the biomedical side. So, what is it? I mean, is this evolution in front of our eyes that's happening faster than we thought? Yeah, I mean, really is. Um, you know, so uh, as you know, viruses do mutate um, quite often, and in, you know, in fact, when they jump body to body, uh, there are mutations. Um, and some of those mutations are, you know, just just natural uh, mutations in in the virus transmitting. Uh, but then, you know, these variants that we are seeing, so Delta and now Omicron, um, really are the the variants that are strong, right? So, you know, it, it, it's basically uh, evolution. It's survival of the fittest. Um, you know, the body also has natural defenses against viruses, and that's why a lot of people uh, don't or they don't get really ill from from the viruses because their bodies um, naturally, you know, natural immunity and defenses that we have. Uh, and so, obviously, you know, the stronger viruses, the stronger mutations will. Be the ones that that naturally survive. Now, the thing about Omicron is that uh, it it has thirty mutations on the spike protein. The spike protein is basically the, the bit of the virus that latches onto human cells, and so that's you know very very unusual. Uh, and so you know, in some of the discussions we've been having, um, it's like you know, how does this emerge? Is it a response from the virus to uh, the fact that more people are vaccinated or, you know, just there's such a mishmash of, um, you know, sort of cures that uh, people have applied and maybe, you know, this this virus is mutating to, to kind of uh, counter those defenses that we're putting in place. Um, and then the other interesting factor is that Omicron and Delta are now the two strong uh, mutations, right? And so it'll be interesting to see which one actually survives. Um, you know, and we also have to, uh, I mean, these, the mutations are more transmissible. Uh, but the other question is, you know, how much of an effect, um, will it actually have on the health, right? So people that get, that get infected, you know, will they develop more severe symptoms or, um, you know, so, so there's a lot, lot of, uh, data that needs to be, uh, gathered here, uh, yeah. beyond just these initial, uh, data points that we have. No, I, I, I agree. And I think it's fun, funny you say that, right? One is like Omicron versus Delta. So hopefully there won't be enough collateral damage as they fight it out <laughs> in the human right. body, right? On the other hand is like you, you mentioned the discussions around like, is this because is it a response to a vaccine, to the vaccines? But, you know, given the fact that you, like you, you and I were talking, given the fact it's arising in South Africa where the vaccination rates are still really low, and yeah. I don't know whether the, the, the data from the breakthrough crisis are conclusive enough to support that yet, but I think that's a process, uh, thing in process, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think with, with, well, with the breakthrough cases, that's a little different because, uh, you know, obviously no vaccine is 100%. Uh, 
Uh, and so, you know, the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting um, ill, right? The, the vaccine just prevents you from getting severely ill and hospitalized, right? So, uh, you know, a lot of the breakthrough cases, the symptoms have actually been pretty mild, right? Um, you know, people have, it's been everything from just the feeling of having a cold to, you know, a mild flu-like symptom, right? So that that's an indication that the vaccines are actually working and doing what yeah. they're supposed yeah. to do, right? Um, and so obviously, you know, where, where uh, vaccination rates are high, the death rate has obviously dropped. The infection rate may continue going up, right? And so we have to look at all the data, and it's yeah. not just the yeah. you know, infection rate. Yeah, yeah. No, we have to look at death rate, hospitalization, et cetera. Yeah, the only reason uh, I was thinking breakthrough cases were the fact that, like, can you actually watch if the viruses are evolving in those cases, right? So it's giving you an indication. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, uh, if you think about the flu, right? The, the, the flu is a SARS uh, virus, right? And so this will, uh, you know, it'll, it'll pro it's going to stay with us. This is not, gonna live with it. nobody uh, is really thinking that this is going to go away, right? Now, the question is, you know, can we develop a vaccine that's as effective or, you know, will we end up with essentially a cocktail like we have in our flu vaccines? Um, that, you know, every year or every other year we'll have to get a booster and, and uh, you know, account for this. Um, and then, you know, the variants, yeah, the variants will continue. But, I mean, the, the one positive uh, with the vaccines, and particularly the MRA, MRA vaccines, is that um, to change a vaccine um, is actually much, much more easier than it is with the traditional vaccines. And then this was actually one of the reasons why, um, you know, Moderna and other uh, Pfizer, et cetera, were able to come up with a vaccine so That's quickly, right? right? There, there was already research that was going on in this space. Uh, and then when, um, you know, COVID hit, um, they were actually able to develop a vaccine very, very quickly. Um, yep. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of... Um, skepticism around the vaccines and and uh, the reality is that they came out very very quickly because we had the technology and really all we we did um was to sort of accelerate the approval process you know typically vaccines and approval process is one it's one thing after another and, and what we did was actually paralyze the way that we uh, did the approvals, right? And so we were able to fast track, um, you know, the, the, the approval of the vaccine. But um, so, yeah, so, you know, as, as variants emerge, I think, uh, you know, the companies will respond and be able to uh, come up with, you know, uh, booster vaccines much, much more quickly. quickly. No, it's it's fascinating. I think you're, you're, you're touching on a few things that are, I think, very relevant, like outside of this scenario thing. One is, the impact of technology compounds over time, right? So, you know, mRNA didn't just happen in a year. It was 30 years of research that culminated in being ready when the situation arises, right? Exactly. Second, exactly. And the other thing is, like, what this pandemic also showed us in this, this rapid evolution of viruses, this quick, this amount of mutations, is the speed at which we need to be ready to go from data to outcomes, right? It's just completely accelerated over the last, you know, this two years. And yeah. of course, the other big thing that came out of COVID was all machine learning models were wrong, right? Because the, the dependence on deep, long form data versus shallow, more contextual data, I think the pendulum is swinging a little bit that way. So, I mean, it's going to be a, a combination of both issues. So, no, this is fascinating. Cam, I want to explore 
more the the data products and AI, uh, the use of AI, applied AI in life sciences in this discussion today, right? Can you, and, and, and I always look at, and people, a lot of people don't really know this, but life sciences is probably one of the really early adopters in statistics, life, you know, uh, machine learning, uh, deep learning, and so forth. Can you give us a color of the state of the industry? I mean, what's the adoption like? What are the popular use cases there? And give us some color on uh, life sciences. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think um, the first thing that's important is that we have to uh, distinguish between AI and machine learning. Uh, obviously, AI is based on machine learning, uh, but uh, you know it's an encompassing term. Uh, and so, what goes into AI is you know a combination of the traditional machine learning methods, uh, along with new approaches like natural language processing, computer vision, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, you know, this sort of um, term around AI, I think, uh, is is a little misused, uh, certainly in the AI industry. Um, and, uh, and you know, so in my mind, you know, if, if we take an example from our industry, so a true AI uh, would be uh, where we build a machine where a researcher could set a set of conditions on a problem. Uh, and that machine is able to then, you know, uh, uh, respond with a plan, a, a set of models, uh, the data to be collected, etc. Uh, in other words, the machine is designing a clinical trial for you, right? So it's a clinical trial, it's a patient population, the data to be collected from that population, and then the models to analyze that data, right? And that's a difficult problem. And today, the way we solve that problem is it's a combination of the machines and uh, humans, right? Um, there's so many variables and conditions that go into something like this, uh, and humans are very uh, adapt and easily recognize uh, and, uh, you know, can plan around uh, or design around those conditions, et cetera, right? And that's really difficult for a machine, right? Um, so I think we will get to a point where we can truly uh, have a machine which is designed, for example, to, you know, um, guide or construct uh, clinical trials, and we don't need to retrain that machine every single time, right? So we're, we're essentially parameterizing the conditions for a trial, and the machine is then able to design a trial for us. Uh, so in my mind, that would really be a true AI. Now, with machine learning, um, you know, we have models. We train those models. Uh, we retrain those models. And so, you know, this is something that in our space has actually been uh, used for several decades now, um, you know, everything from uh, property prediction for physiochemical properties to uh, or toxicity, you know, these sort of effects of a of a, um, a drug on the body, right? So ADME effects, et cetera, uh, all the way to image processing. So, you know, a lot of our images um, that we get from pathology, et cetera, um, you know, we routinely use uh, machine learning um, to do that. Um, and so, over the last five years, you know, that's where we've seen uh, the, the sort of biggest impact for uh, deep learning or machine learning, uh, where we brought in uh, new methods, new approaches to really enhance these methods and techniques we've used in the past uh, and to, you know, basically create uh, models that are either easier to parameterize or they're just more accurate. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, we have uh, property prediction models now that just take in very, very simple information about a compound. Um, you know, there's a, a format or representation that we use in the industry called SMILES, 
Uh, and it's essentially a 1D descriptor that describes a compound. Uh, now, in the past, you would have to take that smile string, you'd, uh, string, you'd have to create a structure from it, you'd have to create a whole bunch of pre-computer, a bunch of properties around that structure, and then you would then do your uh, predictive modeling. And so now we're actually able to just train a model based simply on on that smile string and uh, you know values that we have from our training data and you know the, these deep learning networks. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we still don't understand how deep learning networks really work, really but they're able yeah. to um, you know uh, predict properties with very very simple inputs. Um, and so that makes it very easy for us, right? I mean, we can screen, you know, millions, billions of compounds much, much more easily than we used to in the past. No, that's awesome. And it's actually interesting, uh, you know, one, the fact that I think the, the distinction between AI and machine learning, and you're so true, right? In fact, I also feel that our some of the early approaches in machine learning, and I've been thinking about and talking about this to a lot of people, uh, our early approaches in machine learning was all based on expert systems, symbolic logic and stuff, which was truly yeah. capturing intent and, and context and stuff with the data to train a system, right? Over the last decade with evolution of deep learning and more data-driven methods on machine learning, I think we've swung the pendulum a little too much to the other side, and we're just expecting machine learning to solve everything, right? And in these and the, the real world, the, the 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 real world scenario where you can solve really hard and tough problems is when you can combine both these approaches to build a system that can solve, which is exactly what you're saying, right? Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And and you know, again, it's um, you know, I mean, you can imagine that you know maybe fifty years from now, we you know we'll have the uh, the machines that we see in sci-fi, right? Where you know these these machines are really built in a way that they can replace human beings or they're, they're assisting the human beings. And that's really where, you know, uh, where I kind of see things going, right? It, you know, we're not truly going to replace a human being. I mean, there have been some, um, you know, it, when you look at AI widely, uh, what was it, maybe three, four years ago, there was um, an AI that was created in Japan to, to um, process um, insurance claims, right? And, and that replaced... 30, 40 human workers, right? Now, you know, this is a machine that is fit for purpose. You know, it's making the decisions that a human would make, right? Um, so, you know, it's it's conceivable that we will get to a point where, you know, we can simply ask a machine a set of questions and that machine will uh, have enough training and the data there to then, you know, basically um, give us answers, right? Yeah. Part of, you know, it's even like the society will evolve and, you know, people will evolve as well. The, the One other thing that you actually mentioned was the need for like a smiles example that you took, right? Wherein, you know, the, the importance and relevance of data vocabulary, normalization and harmonization before is, is you know, is so, um, you know, it, it's a little underwhelming in the in the level of awareness for that, because especially in, in pharma where you have so much rich literature, but then all of that is in different formats. So you need like, you know, we, we were working with, uh, you know, and we had talked about it, right? We were using some of these burn IDs and uh, CIDs as indicators to refer to drugs and diseases and so forth to do this, you know, science analysis. So it's fascinating. Let me use that question to actually, you, that comment to go into this question on the role of data, right? So before I even go deep into data, what is the state of adoption, right? Of the techniques exist. But how scale, scaled are they in these organizations, in large life sciences companies and pharma companies? 
Are they, and, and what are the still the bottlenecks that you're working through? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, certainly in, in uh, the research side and, and uh, over on the early discovery side, you know, um, ML and deep learning are now, you know, it's bread and butter, right? I mean, um, there is, there has and continues to be a push to use more in silico approaches, um, you know, so that you fail early. Uh, you screen out the compounds that really aren't going to go anywhere. Um, and that saves a huge amount of cost up front, right? Um, so the, the adoption there is very strong. And, um, you know, certainly around um, the, the last sort of five years with deep learning and, you know, the hardware that's also becoming available, uh, GPUs, TPUs, yep. the cloud, obviously. Um, you know, so the bottleneck... Um, has really shifted away from the hardware question. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, uh, if you did machine learning, you were either doing it in a on-prem uh, data center, you know, huge clusters, or, you know, you were doing it at your desk side with a small GPU cluster, right? And so that affects, uh, you know, how um, uh, rapidly you can develop models or the accuracy of the models. And so now that's shifted away. That's, you know, it's no longer... Um, I mean, it's an issue for other reasons, but it, you know, it's hardware isn't an issue. So really the, the bottlenecks right now are um, starting to shift more around the quality of the data, right? And access to data. Uh, and, you know, data and access to data is really the key to all of this, right? It, you know, if we don't have good data, we don't have, our researchers don't have, aren't able to access the data easily enough, then, you know, that will hinder um, essentially the performance of, of the research. Um, and so some of the things that we're doing is along with the, the modeling aspect is actually putting into place, um, you know, data platforms that allow access to that data or, you know, combinations of various data sets um, so that when you create your uh, model-ready data for the training, um, you know, it's done in a, in a way that's reproducible. It's, you know, all these sort of things that you need for good data science. Um, access to machine learning capabilities is also much, much easier now with, um, you know, solutions that are cloud-based. Um, you know, the, um, several you know, of the major players out there, they actually uh, produce very cost-effective solutions. So, you know, if you need a, a deep learn, a cluster in the cloud for two, three weeks to train your deep learning model, it's, it's actually very cost-effective. Um, so, so some of the bottlenecks have gone away, but, you know, obviously as the, the science is evolving and getting better, there are, you know, other bottlenecks that, that uh, we continue to uh, sort of work around. That's interesting. No, I think, you know, um, especially life sciences is where you produce so much data, right? And, you know, it becomes really uh, 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 the, the data side of the problem needs to be solved so that you can actually go to, uh, to, to perform yeah. the right science. Um, yeah, yeah. What are some of the best practices here, right? I mean, what are some of the things that you're doing, Merck is doing, and, and they, you see the industry doing around the data platforms itself? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, uh, we kind of follow, uh, you know, the FAIR principles around data. So the data is findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable, et cetera. Um, along with that also comes the quality in data, right? And so, um, you obviously, um, 
you know, good data will produce good models, right? And so in order to create good data, you have to have uh, uh, standards and processes that enforce those standards, right? So are we consistent in how we're ingesting in data? Um, you know, are we consistent in how we capture the data of our instruments, et cetera, right? Um, and that, that you know, is still, still a problem with, you know, things like instrument capture, it's not as problematic because, you know, it's basically a process that's running there. Uh, but we still have a lot of processes both within the the, um, uh, the research lab and in, uh, you know, in trials or in, in as we're working with clinicians uh, where it's still a human being, right? So, you know, we still have human beings that are entering in data uh, in the lab. We have obviously doctors that put in data into electronic records or handwritten notes. Uh, and so, you know, if you're using that data to then, you know, build your your uh, models, um, the quality of that data is very, very important. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally, totally get it. And then, uh, and uh, we, you know, we partnered together a few times to solve that very problem around it, Ruth. So, so yeah. let me switch gears. And, you know, you've been also a very early proponent, believer, and even practitioner of quantum computing, right? And uh, where where do you see that evolve? Is that really going to, I mean, where are we on that? How do you see that? How do you pro see the promise of QC in life sciences or to the world in general? <clears throat> yeah, so so quantum computing for us obviously is a, is a natural fit, right? I mean, we use um, quantum chemistry uh, techniques, um, you know, quite extensively in, in early discovery. Uh, you know, everything from uh, simulations to... Uh, uh, property prediction or uh, using data from quantum chemistry to then inform or create, you know, uh, uh, additional models, right? Different models. Um, so uh, QC, for, as I said, it's, it's a great fit there. Um, but we're also looking at uh, uh, QC for problems like optimization, right? And so this isn't just within the lab or in the manufacturing process, but um, you know, as we need to distribute our products, so you know, how do we we optimize around uh, around that? Uh, and and again, it's not just okay. You know, it's the traveling salesman problem. How do we get product from point A to point B? It's actually within uh, even the transport of those products, right? So we could use loose yield um, in the transportation, and so you know, these sort of optimization problems um, are also you know part of our QC journey. So. We're still very early, um, you know. There've been some some good wins there, and uh, more in the optimization space than in the, mm -hmm. the simulation space. And uh, you know, Google a couple of years ago, um, you know, sort of declared quantum supremacy around the simulation that they did on a um, <clears throat> twelve atom um, uh, uh, molecule. Um, now that isn't even close to you know the smallest sort of drug-like compounds that we deal with, and and you know these were hydrogen atoms, right? So uh, for our space, you know the simulation around compounds is still um, we're we're a ways away from that. But what we're learning is you know how do we use QC to solve these problems, right? And um, you know, and so yeah, it's it's kind of like you know when you're doing your PhD, right? You know, your first year is spent like figuring all this out and like yeah. what models, what methods am I going to use? And then you know you you start applying those uh, those learnings to to actually do your yeah. research. Um, and so so that's where we are at the moment. Um, 
Now, for AI, this is, again, um, you know, a, a really interesting uh, sort of uh, space, or, or I should say an overlap between uh, QC and, and approaches in AI. Uh -huh. um, and again, it comes down to uh, the fact that with a quantum computer, you can um, address a problem in a very different way, which allows you to uh, essentially present uh, the uh, the algorithms with much, much more data, right? And more complexity in the data. Um, you know, sort of similar to what we were talking about, you know, just taking this file string and being able to compute a property around it. Um, it's sort of, we're at that point where, you know, the, the data deluge uh, problem will, will actually be solved uh, using approaches in QC. And that's where, again, you know, AI will, in my mind, be uh, accelerated by, by these techniques. Um, you know, I was involved with a company where, uh, you know, we built a very simple model and, and I got to actually press a button to run the model uh, on a piece of quantum hardware, uh, made a big song and dance about it. But the reality was that, that you know, the, the true success in this was that that model that was created uh, could actually be used, retrained on a very, very different set of data, right, without... Uh, you know, a data scientist spending, you know, months and months, uh, rebuilding the code, right? And, and so it's the same QC algorithm. We just, you can essentially tune it for a different, um, problem. And that, you know, goes back to this, this, uh, you know, comment that I made earlier on that, um, a true AI will, you know, you won't have to retrain it. You'll present it with problems. Um, and, you know, the, the AI will be able to basically uh, figure out what the what the problem is based on the questions, et cetera, right? And that, it really comes again with how much data the machine can really process, how much, you know, data do you, can you present to that machine uh, and the algorithms that obviously then, you know, process that data and come up with an answer. That's fascinating. You know, I think, you know, QC, quantum computing, could solve the AI repeatability problem, right? Basically, the fact that you can solve multiple problems, the cold start that doesn't happen, right? And you can actually really, instead of going through the entire pipeline building process, training and going through it, that's fascinating. And I, you know, been, I, I've been watching the space too, but I know it's too early, but it's pretty exciting with the possibilities, what it can actually bring. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, right, right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, where we were, you know, back in the days of the transistor and all the rest of it, you know, we, the uh, the technology to create the transistor was there. Uh, it was just everything else around that transistor, right? So, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge right now is, um, you know, can we eliminate noise and other factors that will affect um, the algorithms running on these machines? Um, and, you know, we're, we're getting better at that. Um, you know, uh, creating qubits nowadays is not really a massive challenge. You know, the, the, the uh, number of, the scale of the qubits uh, continues to sort of grow, but along with that is, you know, essentially all everything that goes into using those qubits. Um, yep. So yeah, so you know, I mean, the, the, over the last sort of uh, five years, again, I would say there's been tremendous, um, you know, increase uh, uh, increases in both performance and um, the algorithms and all the rest of it. And yeah, and you know, there's you know, QC gets a lot of um, the limelight when it comes to things like crypto and uh, yep. military applications and this sort of thing. But um, along with this are, 
a lot there's a lot of work that's going on in the algorithms right and uh you know how we can we can uh, you know use those algorithms um uh, across many many different problems you know at some point we'll need a whole hour deep dive on quantum computing we'll do we'll get you back on the show and talk through that uh you know on on ai one last question related to the industry and and, and where you are at um what are some of the current focus areas or initiatives that you know and and what are some of still the challenges that you're trying to solve today right. yeah so um there, there are a lot of um you know uh, uh, pre-competitive initiatives uh, you know, Vistoria and a whole bunch have, uh, you know, whole groups that are focused on on this problem. Um, there are also a lot of companies um, that that have, uh, uh, you know, popped up, emerged over the last, you know, three four years, uh, and that that's part of the challenge that we have, right? So there's just so much hype surrounding AI at the moment, uh, and and you know it's. In order to really be successful and accelerate here, uh, you know, we need to kind of cut through the hype. Um, you know, we get poached every, you know, every month by some company saying, "Hey, you know, we've solved the entire uh, drug discovery process end to end, right?" And like, not really. You know, you've solved a piece of it, but yeah. there's everything else that goes with it, right? And so, you know, you kind of have to, um, you know, be very selective in. Uh, the, the partners that you work with, right? And uh, and that's what's really gonna, uh, you know, sort of accelerate and also um, help the uh, the adoption. Um, you know, we, we need big wins here. And we, we do have big wins. Um, you know, unfortunately the big wins aren't uh, always the ones that are the, the most- the I mean, obviously with, you know, COVID, uh, it was a huge win there. You know, we uh, the, the once the sequence was, um, published, you know, researchers went to work and, uh, you know, using uh, ML techniques, we were able to look at uh, either existing compounds, um, you know, could we tackle the disease with um, the, the, you know, the compounds we had, we didn't need to go into trials and all that. This was all done through analysis and a lot of machine learning. And then obviously uh, the sequence and, you know, uh, using that uh, sequence to uh, determine the vaccines, et cetera. So, you know that that really kind of uh, brought to attention. You know just just how far we've actually come with um, the approaches and the technology and where we are with you know hardware algorithms and the data science. That is awesome, Cam. This is fascinating. Um, what advice do you have for technology leaders and business leaders in the industry when they're approaching their AI journey today, either starting off or they're scaling their journeys and stuff? What are some nuggets of wisdom? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, the first first thing is obviously you know just just cut through the hype, find the right partners, uh, and you know be very pragmatic about your approach, right? You know just just um, you know they're, they're very um, you know high and long horizons around this, but be pragmatic and and uh, you know have a short term journey as to what is can be accomplished, right? Um, and you know as I said that this. Actually, is no longer in my mind a technology problem. Right? Uh, you know, ten years ago it was, but today it really is. Right? So true. So true. Um, you know, hardware is easily accessible, not an issue anymore. Um, so really, you know, the 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 next thing to look at is, um, you know, uh, how is a company or an industry creating opportunities uh, to bring in people with the right background, right? And certainly for our space. Um, 
you know, we, we get people in from a whole variety of backgrounds, engineering, computer science, uh, obviously uh, the, the um, natural sciences, biology, chemistry, et cetera, right? Sure. But, but um, you yeah, know, that's not always the, the best um, people to have, right? Um, so you can bring in a data scientist, but if they don't understand the domain, then, you know, they may not deliver the best data science, right? And so I think, you know, we kind of have to look at this. Um, one is an industry also as uh, in academia, right? So, you know, how do we guide, um, you know, curricula that um, those data scientists or those um, people that are in, in the uh, natural sciences, but they're also getting some training and, and uh, you know, expertise, building up some expertise around the use of ML or all these approaches, right? Um, and so, you know, it, you've got to build up your competency, competency in your workforce as well. Uh, some of that, again, you know, could be done through retraining. Um, you know, we get a lot of people now that have the data science label because that's, you know, the new buzzword. But um, it's do they create data science? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, it, it, you know, it, as I said, my advice is find the right partners, just ignore the hype, um, and then just bring on the right people to to get the job done. Awesome. Awesome, Cam. No, that's very good advice. And, you know, I had one guest, Akshaya Bhargava, he said, there's a lot of snake oil being sold in AI. So avoid that. I mean, it's very, very common, right? And folks like you who have been in the journey for some time, you understand it. But, you know, there's a lot of others who, you know, go into partnerships, not really knowing what they're getting into. Uh, so yeah. it's awesome. I got a couple of rapid fire questions before we wrap up. Um, artificial general intelligence. Do you believe in it? Do you worry about it? Is that going to happen in our lifetime? Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, this, this you know, it's a huge topic here, right? It's everything from can it actually happen, right, all the way to the ethics of it, it uh, yeah. happening, right? And so I mentioned, you know, uh, this um, AI that, you know, replaced 40-odd uh, workers um, in Japan. In Japan. You know, and then whether it's uh, AI being used for, for something like that or it's um, AI being used for autonomous vehicles, et cetera, you know, I mean, this is going to have a huge impact, uh, you know, on society. And, and uh, you know, again, uh, two, three years ago, the um, European Union actually had a, um, a study and, a um, you know, a collection of minds around this problem. And, you know, they some of the principles that they proposed were, you know, uh, we have to have something like a living wage because machines are going to be replacing more jobs. Um, UBI, yeah. We have to, you know, uh, also uh, build in some principles around, uh, you know, how these machines function. And one of the things that was interesting to me was that they, uh, they, they the, the recommendation was that there's going to be a requirement of a kill switch. Right. So whether it's a software AI, it's a machine, you have to have a kill switch in there that you can turn that, that machine off. So, you know, there's a lot of thinking around this, obviously. And, um, you know, maybe we'll get there one day. Uh, you know, we will truly have, uh, an AI that, um, is really, um, indistinguishable from a human behind a curtain. Right. Um, I believe we will. Um, you know, as I said, I think that the technology is just 
uh, in this space is evolving so rapidly. And then, you know, everything that's going on in QC space will bring in, um, you know, the, the processing power, the, uh, uh, the ability to present yeah. the problems that we have in a very, very different way. Right. And, you know, if you think about it as a human being, you know, we're, we're thinking about a problem in so many different ways, right? And a machine can really only think about it in very linear, you know, handful of ways. Yeah, that's awesome. No, Cam, this is awesome. One last question, personal question: What is one power practice that you use? Um, so, <laughs> well, I wake up every morning thinking, um, you know, what am I doing today, and you know, what's what's really exciting me. I mean, uh, and that's you know, for me, uh, this job uh, every day is exciting, right? Whether it's just these sort of conversations, or um, you know, it's like, okay, we've we've got to get a product out, we've you know, got to get this done because research is depending on something. Um, and so, yeah, I just, you know, keep my enthusiasm up by, um, one, you know, uh, looking at what's going on in, in my industry, looking at other industries and, and, you know, just talking with a lot of different people, uh, getting ideas from people and, uh, you know, just keeping that enthusiasm up. And, you know, that seems like, okay, you know, it's, it's easy, but it can be draining. You know, you, it's you not, are, it's nothing but you easy. Know, right. mental overload and, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so, but yeah, like I said, you know, just, um, I just, I'm very, very, uh, enthusiastic about this space and, you know, um, really want to be able to solve problems and, and solve these difficult problems. No, I mean, when, when we, I, we, we totally, uh, hit it off, isn't it? Thank you for the, the, the friendship as well, because I remember like we were talking three, two, two and a half, three years ago when we first met and we were talking about it and how you were, excitedly telling me about like, Hey, the complexity of the problem that you're trying to solve is this, and we can do more. We can do more of this in here. So no, your enthusiasm yeah. comes through for sure. Cam, um, Cam, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been fascinating. Um, and, and thanks for, thanks for all your commentary. Great. Yeah. And, no, Ganesh, thanks for having me. And yeah. And again, you know, thank you for your, for your friendship. I mean, uh, you know, I think, uh, there's still a long journey ahead here and, uh, you know, be, I'm excited to participate in that journey with you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you're, you're so right. AI, we're still so early in the innings that, you know, the whole world is, the future is so bright that we're going to start needing shades. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.